Where's my order? Does anyone know how to find my order? How can I find Where my order? Is my order? Find my Break free from customer support monotony. Welcome to Intercom, the customer support platform that uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Intercom's business messenger resolves questions that can be answered automatically, so customer support feels less like Groundhog Day and more like help is on the way. Go to intercom.com support to learn more. When it comes to delivering customer support, there are some things you don't want teams to hear. Intercom's streamlined support platform clears up space for more organized workflows and peace of mind. Our business messenger uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Who doesn't like the sound of that? Intercom. Less of this. And more of this. To learn more, go to intercom.com support. Guys, do you want to lose weight fast? Have more energy and improve your health? Now you can with Nutrisystem for men. Get delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, even snacks and shakes delivered right to your door. All delivered for free. It's easy to follow and you'll see results in your first week. Go to Nutrisystem.com slash meal now and get 50% off everything. And with their new premium meals, guys get bigger, bolder meals with up to 30 grams of protein and 25% more calories to keep you feeling fast. Full and satisfied as you drop the pounds. Just go to Nutrisystem.com slash meal right now and get 50% off. You heard me right. Go to Nutrisystem.com slash meal right now and get 50% off everything. Forget about takeout and fast food. Nutrisystem for men is real food and real simple. It's all planned out and delivered right to your front door. Don't wait. This special offer will not last forever. Just go to Nutrisystem.com slash meal right now and get 50% off. Go to Nutrisystem.com slash meal. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Maya Culpa Week in Review. We have a special guest today on Mea Culpa, Miles Taylor, who represents the heart of the GOP resistance to Donald J. Trump. I served as the chief of staff of the Department of Homeland Security under the Donald Trump administration. And it was my job to help the Department of Homeland Security to keep our country safe. What we saw was terrifying. The president wanted to exploit the Department of Homeland Security for his own political purposes and to fuel his own agenda the California wildfires. He told us to stop giving money to people whose houses had burned down because politically it wasn't a base for him. Month after month, he said he wanted to have a deliberate policy of ripping children away from their parents to show those parents that they shouldn't come to the border in the first place. A cyber attack, terrorism threat. He wasn't interested in those things. He was one of the most unfocused, undisciplined senior executives I've ever encountered. A career Republican, he has served as a political appointee in two separate Republican administrations, first in the Pentagon with the George W. Bush administration, and later as the Chief of Staff to the Department of Homeland Security under Donald Trump. He resigned from the administration in 2019 after personally witnessing President Trump offer Homeland Security staff federal pardons for any criminal prosecution arising from their actions in stopping illegal immigration to the United States. Taylor is part of a rising tide of senior officials who have left the Trump administration in frustration and disgust over his corrupt, destructive, and blatantly criminal activity. 
He joins me in conversation today to appeal to his fellow Republicans that the time is now to abandon Donald J. Trump or stand complicit and face the judgment of history. I'm also proud to announce today that this is the largest group of ex-Trump officials that have come out against the president. But first, a quick rundown of the past 72 hours inside the mind and world of Donald J. Trump. I'm not telling anybody but you, but I'm about to make a little surprise visit. So perhaps I'll get there before you get to see me. But I just, uh, when I look at the enthusiasm, and we have enthusiasm like probably nobody's ever had. He's going home tomorrow, hopefully! And some breaking news. After teasing it on Twitter, President Trump briefly left Walter Reed Hospital in a motorcade to greet supporters waiting outside. With less than a month to go before the election, and his already tenuous grip on the electorate slipping even further. Trump's desperation mounts on a daily basis. Joe Biden leads Mr. Trump among registered voters by a shocking 14 points, 53-39, under 40. By far, Joe Biden's biggest lead in our poll so far. Just two weeks ago, Biden's lead was just eight points, 51-43. Last week's one-two punch of the Times tax revelations and his abysmal debate performance seemed to already spell the end with Trump's only remedy left, the manipulation of the ballots, and the sending of his MAGA army into the streets to claim victory for their dear leader. But then came his COVID infection. With this moment, we have truly entered the twilight zone. The normal rules of rational thought no longer apply. Truth and information are now a construct of his insanity. Inside that hospital, watching his medical team outright lie to the American people about the condition of our commander in chief. I thought I was witnessing nothing less than the end of democracy. And Trump is fucking reckless. And he has proven time and again his willingness to bend the narrative and change reality to suit his needs. So, he launched a fusillade of tweets and videos, followed by an impromptu fucking parade. We're now seeing the president in his most elemental form, at his most vulnerable. He reminded me of a trapped rabid animal lashing out from the sick ward, pacing his hospital room, and suffering from steroid-induced psychosis. Uh, we monitor them very closely because there's a host of side effects, including impact on their, um, on their mental health and decision-making. Um, you can see delirium or psychosis. For all of this, I must quote the poet William Butler Yeats. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. The apocalypse may not yet be upon us, but Trump, in his actions, in his madness and his desperation, has proven himself to be every bit the Antichrist. The horror. The horror. And this was merely the warm-up. Knowing Donald J. Trump like I do, I knew there was no way he was staying in the hospital. We're talking about an abject germaphobe and borderline hypochondriac. Just the idea of being in a hospital or being around other sick people makes him insane. Never mind the fact that for him being in the hospital, being seen as weak, is heretical to his very being. No, the only narrative was that Trump would conquer COVID with his superior genetics and his sheer force of will. My guess is that he closely watched how Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro handled his own COVID infection earlier this year and filed it away for later. It was perhaps an unusual way to confirm a case of a highly infectious, potentially deadly virus. Taking off his mask at a news conference, he said to show he was okay. 
while announcing his own test result. There was no other way for him to go. The man has doomed himself to this path when he admittedly downplayed the disease last March. That's not to say he didn't have a chance to pivot. His own people are despairing his squandered moment. They all collectively know that Trump with COVID is a disaster for the campaign. No matter what he does now, and he will try to change the narrative again and again, but no matter what he says or does, this election is about COVID-19 and will be a referendum on his handling of the pandemic. How he's viewed on the subject is all that matters. That said, he could have used this moment to cast himself the reluctant COVID warrior fighting a deadly and dangerous disease. He could have come out a reborn believer from personal experience. His political compatriot, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, did that very thing upon his COVID diagnosis. Every day, I know that this virus brings new sadness and mourning to households across the land. And it is still true that this is the biggest single challenge this country has faced since the war. His hospitalization allowed him a political reset and changed the course of how the UK managed the pandemic from there forward. But who are we kidding? This is Donald Trump we're talking about here. He doesn't care about you, and he certainly doesn't care if you get COVID. Instead, we get the president's grotesque made-for-TV return to the White House via Marine One, which saw him remove his mask and dramatically ascend the White House steps like Rocky. In a moment, uh... It's not unlike his recent trip to a church across the street from the White House during a Black Lives Matter protest. President obviously trying to make a very strong statement of strength here, but removing his mask. There are so many mangled symbols and metaphors here being abused by the president that they're hard to isolate individually. Don't let it dominate you. Don't be afraid of it. You're going to beat it. We have the best medical equipment, we have the best medicines, all developed recently, and you're going to beat it. We're going back, we're going back to work, we're going to be out front. As your leader, I had to do that. I knew there's danger to it, but I had to do it. I stood out front, I led. Nobody that's a leader would not do what I did. And I know there's a risk, there's a danger, but that's okay. And now I'm better, and maybe I'm immune, I don't know. First. There is his appeal to the courage of all Americans to not be afraid of the disease. I know in his mind the words of FDR ring out. He views himself as a great man swept up in the tide of history, and this is his moment. The whole world was indeed watching, but they were aghast. He was a man telling a country ravaged by a deadly virus to not be afraid. Who bragged about the quality of his medical treatment at a moment when millions of Americans have no access to health care because of his destructive attacks against the Affordable Care Act? Uh, the average person gets COVID. They don't get flown by helicopter to Walter Reed Hospital and have a team of 20 doctors, millions of dollars of medical talent attend to their needs. This was theater of the absurd and nothing more. Strength, resolve, defeat, and destroy. By using the language of comic books and macho 80s films, the president has cast himself once again as the hero. So let me go. Just let me go on by. Or I'll fuck you up, ugly. Only Vice President Biden is having none of it. 
he initially pulled all negative advertising as his custom if an opponent falls ill. But witnessing the spectacle of the past two days and Trump's insane and truly destructive behavior, Biden ain't pulling his punches anymore. Anybody who contracts the virus by essentially saying masks don't matter, social distancing doesn't matter, I think is, 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 is responsible for what happens to them. I view wearing this mask not so much protecting me, but as a patriotic responsibility. All the tough guys say, I'm not worried about mask, I'm not afraid. Well, be afraid for your husband, your wife, your son, your daughter, your neighbor, your co-worker. That's who you're protecting having this mask on. So it's within this context of the current moment of doom and fear that I reached out to Miles Taylor. Here is a man with unimpeachable Republican credentials. A man who was involved at the highest levels of government and was literally in the room with Donald J. Trump when he made many of his most destructive decisions. Joining us today via Zoom from Santa Fe, New Mexico, he comes armed with a warning and the phone numbers of scores of administration officials who are texting him with panic regularity. Let's go now to that conversation. Now, you spent two years in the Department of Homeland Security as its chief of staff to Kirsten Nielsen. And you've also been a stalwart Republican for years, as well as serving as a political appointee in other administrations to the Department of Defense and elsewhere. What ultimately made you decide to break with your party and endorse Joe Biden? Look, the biggest thing for me was the president's failure, in my view, to secure the country. Now, I'm a product of 9-11, and I got into public service because I wanted to prevent a day like that from happening again. And my animating drive in public service has been to protect the United States against persistent and emerging threats. Over the course of my two and a half years in the Trump administration, and then, of course, helping lead the Department of Homeland Security, it became very evident to me that not only was the president failing to secure the country, but he was undertaking actions that were very detrimental to our national security, whether that was in foreign policy or right here in the homeland. I mean, on the foreign policy front, look, I mean, people have said it before, and it's the truth. It became clear to us that Donald Trump preferred to spend more time and energy cultivating relationships with our adversaries, with the bad guys, uh, than he did with our friends. And in fact, what's worse, he would kick our friends internationally to the curbside, ignore them, abrogate our agreements with them, uh, you know, defy multi-decade arrangements that we had with them uh, instead to cater to these autocrats around the world who want to see Americans dead. I mean, I can't put that in starker terms. The president of the United States wanted to be friends with foreign leaders who want to see Americans dead and who want to undermine our country. That was terrifying in and of itself. But what was worse is here on the home front, where we at DHS were responsible for protecting Americans against everything from cyber threats to terrorist attacks, the president was so obsessed with the border wall, and only the border wall, that it was to the exclusion of so many other issues on which we needed the attention of the commander-in-chief of the president of the United States, but he, he wouldn't. In fact, if I had to put a percentage on it, I've told folks, I think Donald Trump mentally, uh, when it came to homeland security issues, was about 95% invested in the border wall and about 5% other issues. Well, look, the border wall is not the 95% most important thing in terms of protecting Americans and their security. You know, border security is important. I think it's important. It's a piece of that pie when it comes to homeland security, but it shouldn't be that. And that's why I say he had a wall or nothing approach to governing. Early on, 
that was his big campaign promise, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to build a wall, and then who's going to pay for it? Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that he was so into this border wall was simply because it was polling well in terms of where popularists in this country were concerned about. And somebody had told him once a um, an adage that if you don't have borders, quite frankly, you don't have a country. Mm -hmm. And that just that just rode him and he just continued on and on with the same scenario and no matter how many times that he tried to to push this who's going to build the wall we're going to build the wall and who's going to pay for it mexico i mean he looks to me he looks very stupid in the fact that this was his platform and after four years of being president all he did is fix some of the wall that was already taken down. I mean, there's technically no new wall that was built. But more going, going to another point, you pinned a tweet to the top of your feed from Teddy Roosevelt that reads, to my former colleagues on the fence, to announce that there must be no criticism of the president or that we are to stand by the president, right or wrong, is not only unpatriotic and servile, but it's morally treasonable to the American public. What do you think is the duty of fellow Republicans in denouncing this president? Well, Michael, I'm really glad that you asked because I've had people say to me as I've started to speak out, I mean, I had people say to me, Miles, come on, look, um, you know, you really shouldn't be talking about these more sensitive conversations, uh, you know, with the president and things that you witnessed. And, and first, I, I want to note one thing in speaking out against the president. There are things that I won't talk about because there were very sensitive conversations. And what I mean is classified conversations, whether they were in the Oval Office, or the White House Situation Room, you can't talk about those, right? And there's a legal reason why not to, but there's a critical national security reason to protect those. So those are things that I'll never get into. What I disagree with is the notion that someone who served the president can't later criticize the president, especially if they've witnessed behavior that's immoral, unethical, or potentially illegal. And that is the case with Donald Trump. I witnessed those things. And there was someone, I don't want to, attach their name to it, but a lot of your listeners will know who this is. There was a cabinet secretary who left the Trump administration who went on a tour, a uh, media tour, and said, you know, look, as the French used to say, there's a duty of silence when you leave an administration. And when you leave government, there's a duty of silence not to talk about that leader. I could not disagree more. And that's actually why I pinned that tweet from Teddy Roosevelt, because one of our own former presidents said, not only do you not have a duty of silence, you have a duty to speak up about the president, especially uh, if you disagree with what you're seeing. So, um, you know, that's my message to fellow Republicans is that is your duty. Your duty is in silence. Your duty is to tell the truth. And Michael, you and I know a lot of these people, senators and congressmen who we've known throughout the years, who behind the scenes will tell both of us that they think the president is nuts. I mean, there are- No, 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 no. In all fairness, they say much worse than that. That's true. Much worse. And, and it's scary to me that these people are sitting with him in the Oval Office, I know, I know individuals that were in the Oval Office that used to take things off the president's desk because they were afraid that he was going to act on it because it was given by somebody who was crazier than he is. Now, those people are no longer in the, the White House, and not because of what they did, but because they chose to leave. But I want you to think about that for a second. In my whole life, I cannot imagine somebody taking something off of my desk or the president of the company, i.e. Donald Trump with the Trump Org. Mm -hmm. 
let alone the President of the United States. They would literally take documents off the desk so that he wouldn't be able to read them and react to it. I mean, that's pretty scary. It is. I mean, I can remember, especially in the first year of the administration, as everyone was getting acclimated to this, we would have these, you know, weekly national security phone calls where we would connect with State Department and Justice Department and the others, and we'd get the cabinet secretaries <clears throat> on the line to talk about, you know, what was going on that week and the threats. And you'd also have the national security advisor at the time, H.R. McMaster, talking about what was happening at the White House. I tell you what, it felt like every other one of those phone calls, there would be a five alarm fire. And people would say, wait, what the hell is the president getting ready to do? And cabinet secretaries across town would have to cancel their day, rush to the White House and convince the president not to do something crazy. I mean, this was happening all the time, and it became deeply disruptive to actually carrying out the functions of government. I mean, taxpayers should know that. You want your the people that are there running these departments and agencies to go to work every day and do their jobs and protect you. But they're not able to do that when the president is losing his mind on a regular basis because of something he saw last night on Lou Dobbs. Uh, and now he wants to pull out of some international agreement, you know, which would put American lives in danger overseas. I mean, this was something that we confronted all the time. But, you know, those people, like you said, Michael, are gone. And you know this as well as anyone. Donald Trump, if you can give him credit for anything, it's that he has got a radar for people who have a conscience. And he identifies those people with a conscience and the ones who will hold him accountable. And he systematically purges them. Um, and, and that's what happened. I mean, the so-called axis of adults, he identified each one of them within the first few months as someone who was willing to buck him by speaking the truth. Um, and, you know, he had it out for him. So, uh, you know, some of them may have been eyeing the exits, uh, but he was eyeing the guillotine and, um, and he took a lot of them out. And now we're, we're kind of stuck with a circle of sycophants around the president. Yeah, but you're talking about 80% of the people that were originally brought in are no longer there. That's a staggering and scary number. Yep. But going back to your issue about national security, in your latest CNN opinion piece, you wrote, the fact is that by downplaying a public health crisis for many months, President Donald Trump and his aides have created a national security crisis. I really want you to describe for our listeners how our enemies could use this moment against us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, here's the thing. We can have sympathy for the president or his family and, and the other folks that have gotten sick. And I, I genuinely wish everyone well. I mean, I hope they all recover and I hope the president himself recovers very quickly. And in fact, frankly, that's because I want to make sure that we can beat him at the ballot box. And, uh, you know, if he's sick, it's much harder to do that. So I hope the president does recover. Uh, wish he and his family well. But the situation that he has put our federal government in is extraordinarily tenuous. Um, it's not just, you know, the president being sick and we've got to feel bad for him being sick. No, no, we're talking about the commander in chief of the armed forces of the United States right now may or may not be able to do his job in a crisis situation. What's worse is that you've got the vice president of the United States who's now uh, notionally, you know, second in command and would have to take over if the president's case broke bad and if he got sicker, but the vice president is now traveling around the country doing campaign stops and is going to do a vice presidential debate. If that person gets sick, Nancy Pelosi becomes president, acting President Pelosi, uh, and we're in a constitutional crisis. That's how the order of succession works. So why is this a national security crisis? Well, because our adversaries see this, and they could potentially take advantage of it in a lot of different ways. The simple ways would be spreading lies and misinformation about the president's uh, well-being and about the vice president's well-being, and that could create confusion both within our country, 
um, and the people who need to rely on engaging with the president from the Congress to his own cabinet, but also uh, for other world leaders who need to know who to get in touch with here in the United States if there's a crisis. But I think the bigger concern is were an incident to happen internationally, our government right now, I don't think would function nearly as smoothly as it would need to. I have a little bit of a different of a different take than you. You're, yep. you're talking more from uh, an American standpoint of disinformation. So on. I give more credit to the American people than that. I believe that they see through the bullshit. And I think that they understand, you know, the disinformation that goes on on Facebook and Twitter and so on with mm -hmm. these fake bots and, and, and so on. I think our real national security issue is much greater than that. When you have a president that's down, and you have a vice president like Pence. And again, I, I know Mike Pence. I was around Mike Pence from the beginning. He's incapable. He's incapable of doing anything. He's technically, he's incompetent, to be honest with you. And now this is an opportunity for the Chinese, for the Iranians, for the Russians to start to hack into our power grid systems, to hack into the Pentagon, to start to do things. Because even though the system runs, as you were just saying, when the top guy is out of business, it's very hard for anybody else to do their job. My understanding today is that there's almost nobody in the White House right now because everybody's quarantining because this fucking idiot decides to run around without the mask. And unlike you, maybe I'm just not as sympathetic as you are to it. This is all avoidable. And as a yeah. friend of mine that I it saw was. this morning, she lost her mom. And she turned around and she says this to me each and every time. I hope. I hope that the president, and I, and I hate that she says this to me, and I say it to her all the time, I, she goes, I hope that now the president will get a chance to apologize to my mother in person. And I'm like, <laughs> that's, that's a little bit rough. I wish no death upon anybody. But you know what? He, he thought he was going to bully a virus. And guess what? His ignorance and his arrogance is what caused him to now be infected with COVID and all of those other people around him. Well, and it puts us in danger. And I, that's the point, Michael, right, is that by letting himself get sick, the president has put our country in greater danger. As you note, the infection has spread through a number of senior officials throughout the executive branch and the legislative branch. And the government, the actual functions of government have been affected. These people at the White House that you just mentioned that are supposed to go in every day, have access to classified systems, be there in an emergency. I mean, these people are having to quarantine. So God forbid there was an incident uh, like the you know, Russians attempting to um, do some kind of attack against a part of the United States virtually or otherwise. Um, would we be in a position to respond effectively? And right now, I think that's an open question. And the, it's directly the president's fault that this happened because he's had such a laissez-faire attitude about this virus. I mean, just today, this morning, I, of course, walked down the street. I've said this. I said this on Twitter the other day. I walked down the street to my Starbucks. And you know what it says on the door outside the Starbucks? It says, you cannot enter without a mask and you have to socially distance if you're in here. Otherwise, you're getting kicked out. Just two days ago, the White House reiterated that they have no plans whatsoever to institute a mask mandate on the White House premises. Okay, so I can't go nice. into my Starbucks without a mask, but I can go and see the Commander-in-Chief in the Oval Office without a mask? That's truly insane. It's, it, it's total recklessness. Moving on, so Olivia Troy, someone who you know, and her words of warning from two weeks ago have suddenly taken on a whole renewed importance as the president's entire COVID-19 is now his whole his narrative is just crumbling. What does she say about his attitude towards masks within the White House and the disease in general? Because I remember she had said, no matter how hard you worked 
The president was going to do something detrimental to keeping Americans safe. It was awful. It was terrifying. What did she say about his attitude? I've said this about Olivia Troy. She is, first of all, she's not a liar. If you hear anything that Olivia Troy says on television, she's telling the truth. She's a patriot. She's a public servant. She's a lifelong uh, intelligence and national security professional. This is not a political person trying to dunk on the president. So she's a truth teller. What she said about the culture the president created in the White House is that it was antithetical to actually addressing this crisis. So, you know, set aside all the mistakes the president's made nationwide in protecting people against this virus. Olivia has said they're in the building. She made people feel intimidated to even wear masks around them. He would ridicule staff for wearing masks and say things like, take that off. So the own health guidance that his government was putting out to keep Americans from dying from COVID, the president was mocking his own team for following that health guidance. That sends one hell of a signal around the country. And in fact, the the example the president has set, Olivia herself has said, the bad example he has set has caused the unnecessary deaths of tens of thousands of Americans. Again, this is not a political person. She's not a Democrat. She's not trying to score points for an election. This is someone who was Our body cam, our human body cam in the West Wing, who was a part of these meetings with the president, saw it, witnessed it, and is now reporting back to the American people that his recklessness when it came to this virus has caused, again, the unnecessary deaths of tens of thousands of Americans. I think that's stunning. Um, And, you know, look, Olivia has also said that the president even made a lot of sick jokes about COVID. One thing that she noted is they were in a meeting. He said, you know, this might actually be kind of good for me so I don't have to shake the hands of those disgusting people out there. He was talking about his supporters at his own rally. Yeah, I mean, I, listen, I've I've seen that I've seen that happen a thousand times. Where after one of the one of the meetings where he was shaking hands, whether it was the evangelicals or anybody that was at Trump Tower, and he had to shake their hands, then he's using this um, sani cloth that you're not supposed to touch, let it touch your skin, and he would always be grossed out by you know his even as you said his own supporters. But you bring up something that Olivia Troy is not a Democrat, uh, and you know therefore she shouldn't be considered a liar. You know, just because you're a Democrat doesn't mean, number one, that you want to see the president suffer from COVID-19. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you think that everything that comes out of the president's mouth is a lie. Unfortunately, whether you're Republican or Democrat, everything that does come out of his mouth is a fucking lie. He can't help himself. And after you hit 35, 40,000 lies to the American people over a four-year period, it's very hard for people, whether Republican, Democrat, independent, or just a foreigner. It doesn't make a difference. Everything that comes out of his mouth is now suspect, including there's been a ton of loud chatter from all sorts of respectable pundits to the notion that the president might be faking this entire illness to change the narrative off of his taxes and white supremacy, and that he's lied so much about everything. Why not lie about this as well? You see any validity in that argument? Well, What I think that we've already seen is just in the days since the president was diagnosed, he has been lying about his condition. And I don't think either you or I are surprised, Michael, that this White House immediate reaction was to obfuscate and misdirect. And we've had the president's doctor going out and saying one thing. And within minutes, his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, going down to reporters and saying another thing. The doctor basically saying everything's copacetic, the president's fine. Mark Meadows saying his vitals are tanking and the next 48 hours are going to be critical. 
This is the White House that Donald Trump has created. Yeah, I said in my in a tweet the other day I put out that Mark Meadows, who I think is an asshole, I that Mark Meadows is the luckiest guy in the planet that Trump is incapacitated right now at Walter Reed. Because if he was in the White House after a gaffe like that, that he would be he would have his ass reamed out, something fierce. And chances are, even before with thirty days left to the election, he would be he would get shit canned. That's my opinion. Um, it's actually what I've mm-hmm. seen happen time and time again. Uh, it's, but, it, but you're right. Everything that these sycophants that are around him are saying, it's all pre-designed. And I'm not even sure if it's designed properly. I'm not sure that, this, that faking it would be a benefit to Trump. I'm not sure. What, what do you think? Well, uh, look, at the end of the day, I actually do think, and we'll see what the polls say. I think that the American people right now are recognizing that the president getting sick is the ultimate culmination of his failure to control this virus. If the president of the United States cannot protect himself and cannot be protected against this virus, uh, it's 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 a, the most damning indictment of his handling of the crisis that is possible. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have said, oh, it's karma. You know, look, I'm not as vindictive as to want to say, you know, this is karma, but by God, it's something close to it. Yeah, Todd, that's because you didn't do 15 months in prison like I did. That's right. <laughs> you know, 15 months will really change you. Um, you think if the yeah. president becomes further incapacitated and is unable to discharge his duties to those around him, there's a lot of talk about the 25th Amendment. You think they'll ever do it? Well, look. I think they would need to if the president was incapacitated. If they're smart, then right now the president has already, or at least his aides, have drafted a letter that he would sign handing over power to the vice president. Would he be incapacitated? But Michael, you and I both know this. The president, even if That's he was not gonna really on death's doorstep, he would be extremely reluctant to ever do that. So there's this possibility, however remote, but one that we have to take seriously right now, that the majority of his cabinet and that the vice president need to be ready to take that action uh, if it comes to it. That's a really scary prospect. You know, it's funny, a couple of years ago when people were speculating about whether the president's cabinet was going to use the 25th Amendment to essentially, you know, vote to remove him from office. You know, look, I thought it was pretty crazy. I heard some of that chatter inside the administration, and none of us thought that that would actually happen because the president, you know, physically was able to do his job. Now, there's a debate about whether cognitively uh, the president was really Uh, all there. And I think that people feel very strongly about that. But at the end of the day, that chatter died down because people felt like, look, the American people are going to see that as a coup. That's not a reasonable way to deal with this president. The way to beat him is to uh, beat him at the ballot box or, you know, impeach him if he does something illegal. Well, now we saw, look, impeachment, he did do something that was clearly a high crime or a misdemeanor. He wasn't removed from office. The best way to beat him is at the ballot box. But look, now we are actually in a situation where if the president cannot discharge his duties, the people around him have to think seriously uh, about whether those powers need to be invoked. Now, you know, I don't know the latest on his condition at this very moment, but it's something uh, that needs to be, uh, you know, on the table to keep our country and our democracy functioning. God forbid it happens, but, you know, Donald Trump is the one that has put us in this territory. And I think that's the key point here, Michael, is you and I are talking about something so extreme as the 25th Amendment, but we're not talking about it because, you know, we're a bunch of lunatics that want to depose a president. We're talking about it because the president has put himself in harm's way. And as a result, he's putting the stability of our democracy in harm's way. Well, it's, it's, he put it there from ignorance and arrogance. But you also retweeted a post from Seth MacFarlane that quotes um, Neil deGrasse Tyson. And it says in the tweet, the thing about science is that it's true. 
whether or not you believe in it. Now, the president's anti-science fervor is noted, but I was personally struck in seeing the photos from the event in um, the Rose Garden, which appears to be the COVID nexus point, and how there were so few Republicans attending who wore masks. It's like that they were in some sort of a bubble protected through some magical thinking and the sheer force of the president's will. What the hell's wrong with them? You know, the president has created, he's got this vice-like grip on the Republican Party, and you and I have both seen it, that he has created such a, so much fear in Washington and in GOP circles that they're scared to stand out against him. I mean, he's such, he's the biggest bully in the, in, in American political history. And they're worried about losing their jobs and losing their careers and getting attacked by the president. So they'll shut up and they follow him slavishly. And I think that's really disappointing. We were talking about this a little bit earlier, but you know, these are the same people who behind the scenes will say the president's out of his mind. He's crazy. He's unfit for office. And then they'll go sit there and they'll smile and nod in the, in the, you know, Rose garden at the white house and uh, you know, just follow his lead. It's extremely disappointing uh, to witness. And, you know, look, I think that the Republican party is going to have uh, a hell of a rebuilding job to do after Donald Trump. But, um, you know, these folks just follow him. The other thing I want to note about the Rose Garden event, Michael, is that when you looked at that, you did not get the sense that we are facing a once in a century global pandemic. And this is how the White House should have responded from the beginning. They should have responded to the coronavirus as if it was a biological threat. Just like after 9-11, when we had the anthrax attacks in Washington, D.C., and Washington, D.C. became, you know, was on lockdown, right? And members of Congress and the administration took extraordinary steps to protect the country, right? It was a biological terror threat. That's how COVID-19 should have been addressed, with that level of seriousness, right? And the White House itself should operate with that level of seriousness, that there is, as the president says, an invisible enemy spreading that could hit the White House at any day. And they need to have procedures like that. But they didn't. They've not treated this like a bio threat. They've treated this like it was a casual concern. And that's why you have pictures of people smiling, hugging, laughing, and sitting right next to each other uh, in the Rose Garden amidst this. And, and that really is the recklessness and arrogance that you talk about. Uh, and it's put American lives on the line. But Miles, remember something, that they're all still ignoring the fact that the president himself is at Walter Reed. And after all of this, they still make mask wearing optional in the White House grounds. Now, yep. why do you think that they're so dug in around this issue at this point? It's one thing when the president was sitting in the White House and he's telling him, I don't want to see a mask on your face. I mean, that's just, to me, again, sheer ignorance and arrogance. But now the commander in chief is sitting in Walter Reed. And what he doesn't seem to understand is there's a path to COVID-19. First you get it, and then you feel lousy, and then you sort of, uh, it's like a very bad flu. But that's when it then spikes. So it's the, it's the calm before the storm. But they're so dug mm -hmm. in around this issue. Why? Well, it's, it's because of him. So, you know, because of the president's ignorance about how to respond to the virus and his own, and I think you, you know this better than me, I suspect that when this all began, the president thought the idea of wearing a mask made him look weak. And there's no one in the world more scared of looking weak than Donald Trump. And I, I remember that because in many meetings with him, you know, he would look at us and say, you need to be tough. You got to look tougher. We got to look tough. You know, he was really, really concerned about not looking like a loser. And I think that personally, he just felt like he looked like 
a little bit of a weakling if he had a mask on because we all associate masks with hospitals and you know scary stuff and illnesses and so I think he, that's really what it came down to. He didn't want to look weak, didn't want to wear a mask, and therefore he made it into a political symbol. If you don't wear a mask, you're tough and you're strong. And because he became so wedded to that, the president actually it became a self-fulfilling prophecy is that the people around him didn't wear masks. And then Americans uh, you know, who supported the president took this as a sign that they were with him and that they were tough and we were tough if they didn't wear masks. And it ballooned into this truly a separate public health crisis on top of coronavirus. And that crisis being uh, a crisis of ignorance, medical ignorance in this country where people will just follow what the president says and does. And, um, and that's why I think the president hasn't walked back on it. There's a big difference between being tough and being stupid. You got a, a, yep. a gentleman like, um, you know, like Dr. Fauci, who is the most regarded in this area. And he himself is telling the president that there is a benefit and it is imperative that the American people wear masks in order to reduce the spread. Even the Secret Service is angry right now. I mean, the Washington Post mm -hmm. wrote, and you highlighted this on CNN as well. Agents who work in the field offices around the country complained that since late August, they're no longer being tested when they return home from working at a rally for the president. And the administration doesn't care about the Secret Service. One current agent relayed in an internal discussion group, it's so obvious. I mean, if I understand that their job is to take a bullet for the president, just as I stupidly stated to Vanity Fair's Emily Jane Fox that I would take a bullet for President Trump, and I would have, but just not if he's the one pulling the trigger. This asshole is pulling the trigger on Secret Service agents, on the police, on, on his own supporters by stupidly telling them you don't need to wear a mask, that if you want to display strength and you, to whoever thinks that it's strong not to wear the masks, right? I, I just truly can't understand what the man is thinking and why those that are around him are just blindly, like I did, blindly following him because look what happened to me by blindly following nothing good comes out of it yeah. what are they thinking well you 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 could not have put this better especially by saying it's their job to take a bullet for the president but what if the president himself is the one pulling the trigger and we just saw that the other day with donald trump deciding to take a victory lap outside of walter reed to see his supporters and you can see the secret service agents in the vehicle wearing their protective equipment. But we we also know, no matter how much protective equipment you wear, you can still get exposed to this virus and you can get this virus. That's why doctors and nurses around the country who've been responding to COVID, even with the best protective equipment, have come down with the disease and in some cases uh, have been killed because of it. So there was the president effectively holding a gun to the heads of the Secret Service agents in his car by, by merely sitting in there breathing and being with them when he has a deadly once in a century pathogen. If that's not disgusting, I don't know what is. I've served with Secret Service agents uh, for many years. We oversaw the Secret Service. Right. But don't forget also in those vehicles, I mean, there's no circulation of fresh air. Oh, yeah. That's either the air conditioners. I mean, you are in a sealed vehicle. I mean, I yeah. don't know if you've ever, you've been in those vehicles like I have. Of those course. doors weigh 400 pounds. Yeah. I mean, it's no, it's no joke. So who's currently in the loop on the president's condition? Who's calling the shots right now? This is something I'm concerned about. 
because we've been given very little information from this administration about what we call, what we used to call continuity of government, right? There's procedures and policies that you follow to make sure that in a situation like this, the government continues to function. Everyone knows who's in charge. The administration talked very little about that. They haven't really told us if at any point Vice President Mike Pence uh, has been given additional authorities or leeway to make decisions. Um, it's unclear to us if the president's condition worsens exactly how this is going to play out. What's more, I actually think there's confusion in the cabinet about what's going on. I mean, I was texting with someone who's a senior national security official the other day uh, who basically said to me, I have no idea what's going on with the president's condition and they're not keeping me up to date. That was very concerning to me because this was a person who really should know what the president's condition is in case they have to step up uh, in, in a crisis and start immediately reporting to the vice president or, or you know, someone else. So um, th that's a big problem here. We're not getting the transparency out of the White House that's demanded by this moment. Now, none of us are shocked because this is the same White House that wouldn't be transparent about things like crowd sizes at an inauguration. But this is a little bit more consequential than crowd sizes at an inauguration, okay? We're talking about the security of our country. So, uh, you know, look, I think, it's a, I think it's a good question, Michael, whether or not the president um, is in a condition right now to continue doing his job. And that's why the other day I said, look, we need an update from the White House every hour on the hour until the president beats the virus of whether or not he's able to discharge the functions and duties of his office. We should know, you know, minute by minute whether that's the case. Right, but Miles, you're not going to get that. That's true. Not only not only are you not going to get that. You're you're getting a contradiction inside the White House from mm -hmm. the doctors to the Mark Meadows of the world who believes that he's the latest breed of the president's men and all that's going on the way that I see it is this is the president calling shots while he's laying on his back with a fever. And what bothered me yesterday about forgetting about the fact that he put all of these Secret Service agents in, in harm's way, he put himself in harm's way, he's put everyone in a, from a health perspective. What about the fact that there's a cost? There's a cost to the American people for this drive-by stunt that King Donald felt he needed to do in order to ensure that his loyal subjects waiting on the street knew that he was okay enough to be paraded around the block twice so that he could rotate his hand like the king or the, or the pope as he's driving down the street. It was the stupidest display, again, of arrogance and ignorance that I've ever seen coming out of the White House. It is a complete contradiction to everything that anybody else would normally do. I just don't get it. Help me out here. Yeah, I mean, you know, th this really cuts to the core of the character of the man. And I think that's why for most of us, this is a character election. You know, you served with Donald Trump for years. I've been a Republican almost all my life. I've been a Democrat. I've been a Democrat my whole life. The only time that I switched yeah. over was when I was asked by Pataki to become a Republican so I could run for city council in 2002. And then the other time is when I was the vice chair of the RNC Finance Committee. Steve Wynn, who was the chair at the time, said, Michael, Ronna Romney McDaniel is saying, you can't be the vice chair if you're a Democrat. <laughs> so they switched my party affiliation. And then once I left as a result of the FBI raid and others, I switched back. So I, I understand your point. But please continue. Well, I, I think there's a really good question here. 
that people should ask themselves. And that is, why are there so many turncoats around Donald Trump? Whether it's you, Michael, or me, Miles Taylor, or John Bolton, or you name it, or really anyone in this cabinet who has come to the conclusion that he's unfit. Why are there so many turncoats in his orbit? Is it that Donald Trump has a magnetic attraction to traitors? I don't think that that's the case. I think the more logical explanation is there's so many turncoats in Donald Trump's orbit because once they encounter him and realize who he is, they realize he's a man of precisely no character. And their own consciences kick in and say, this is not okay. This is not a good guy. Now, Miles, I'm going to take it a little bit in a different direction You know, than you on that. You're right. Please. He has no character. He has no loyalty to anyone. So therefore, when the shit hits the fan, what does he do? He deflects, he projects, he denigrates, he moves on, and he throws you under the bus. And that's the problem. And people don't want to be thrown under the bus after they've given him everything, thinking that he's going to himself be loyal. He doesn't care about anyone or anything other than himself. And when it comes push to shove, as I said to George Stephanopoulos uh, well over two years ago now, my loyalty, my first loyalty belongs to my wife, my daughter, my son, and my country. He doesn't see it that way. He believes that your first loyalty belongs to him and only him. And it's, it's, a, it's a really misguided, sick me mentality. And that's why he is a narcissistic sociopath. I was just going to say, I wonder if people who are affected by this immediately in the White House will take this as a wake-up call. I mean, we just have uh, news breaking relatively recently that now the White House press secretary... Kaylee McEnany has got coronavirus. Uh, this thing is spreading through the West Wing like wildfire. And it's, do, it's spreading through the West Wing because the president doesn't care. He doesn't care about the health of his own people. He cares about his own health. And I'm sure that's why he's having the doctors throw the kitchen sink uh, at his COVID diagnosis is because he's scared. But he doesn't care about the health of the people around him. Otherwise, he would have insisted that they protect themselves. And now we've got some of the senior most figures in the West Wing have been taken down by this virus because he doesn't care. And he hasn't cared. And this is the end result. And people's lives are on the line. Miles, did I not just say to you, Donald Trump doesn't care about anyone. Please, people, listen up. All right. If you have mm -hmm. your ear pods in or you have wax in your ears, clean them and listen to everything that I'm trying to tell you. I know Trump better than you, and I want you to hear this from somebody who has paid the ultimate price, and that ultimate price starts with my family's happiness, with my freedom, my loss of my law license, my business, everything, friendships, you name it. I want you to hear me and hear me good. Donald Trump doesn't care about anyone or anything other than himself. But you know, Miles, in your Washington Post op-ed from August, you cite Trump's bungled response to coronavirus pandemic as the ultimate example of him being unfit for office. And you write in, in that op-ed, in his cavalier disregard for the seriousness of the threat, Trump failed to make effective use of the federal crisis response system painstakingly built after 9-11. Years of DHS planning for a pandemic threat have basically been largely wasted. I want you to explain to me in a more um, granular detail what was wasted yeah. 
and what he focused on instead. Well, here's what's extraordinary about it. And this is the perfect, perfect example of the president's ego getting in the way of national security. And that is, after 9-11, we built a very clear system for how to respond to major nationwide man-made or natural disasters. And basically that system runs through the Department of Homeland Security. It's called the National Incident Management System. There's clear lanes of authority. It's basically, think of it as the equivalent of how the military is structured to fight a war overseas. There's a direct line to the president, to the secretary of defense, and to the commanders out into the field. So there's clear accountability in a crisis uh, to be able to deal with the situation and defeat the enemy. Something similar was created domestically here in the United States through the Department of Homeland Security. So if there was a major terrorist attack or a hurricane or, God forbid, a global pandemic, that there would be a direct line of accountability from the president to the secretary of Homeland Security and to the incident commanders around the country responsible for it. That system, there were plans on the shelf exactly for how to respond to COVID-19. It was all thrown out the window, and I'm going to tell you exactly why. And it's because the president himself was obsessed with being seen as the person who was, you know, leading the charge. All right. Now, he didn't actually want to take responsibility for things that were difficult, but he wanted to be on TV. He wanted to be on primetime. So the president created kind of an ad hoc task force at the White House to try to respond to this pandemic by committee. Well, that doesn't work to respond to a crisis like this by committee. You need command and control, and you actually need the commander in chief to empower the people who are in charge. The president ignored that system. He didn't use DHS the way it was supposed to be used, the way we designed it after 9-11. He instead wanted to spend every day coming out and doing primetime press conferences. You saw that. You remember the president tweeting and talking about how his ratings were so high as the coronavirus broke out and his, his press conferences, he was so obsessed with how many people were watching them. He cared more about the ratings than he cared about the lives that needed to be saved. And as a result, he did not activate the structures and certainly not in a timely manner that we created to make sure something like this was responded to quickly and effectively. And instead, the president governed by, governed by whim and impulse, which we've seen him do for a very long time. And again, it was a self-centered response. He wanted it to be all about Donald Trump, Donald Trump's ratings and words. And that's why people died. Yeah, but Miles, you have to remember that Trump won the election because of his ratings. That's, and that's why he believes that if the ratings that are discussed on the news, and generally he now he's really mostly fixated with Fox, which is just full of shit, and that you can't get an honest center with Fox. Everything now is far to the right of Sean Hannity. I want to ask you, are you still in contact with colleagues in the administration? And without giving any names, because I wouldn't want you to do that. What's the general feeling amongst, actually, I would want you to do it, but I'm not going to ask you to do it. What's the general feel? <laughs> what's the general feeling amongst White House and administration staff in terms of the president's positive COVID-19 diagnosis? Yeah, I talk to a lot of people still that are at the White House and at different departments and agencies. And most of them feel like the administration is in free fall. And in fact, there was someone that I talked to just within the last 48 hours who uh, is relatively close to the Oval Office. I won't get any more specific than that, but this individual said they were absolutely disgusted by the handling of the president's diagnosis, by the fact that the president 
even got sick in the first place, which this person who works at the White House felt like was a clear indicator of how they've been failing to even protect their own workforce. Now, this is someone who uh, I'm, I'm urging to resign from their position and speak out, and that may happen in the coming weeks. Um, but it's someone who, again, came into this administration loyal to the president, wanting to work hard for him, and now feels like they were personally put in danger because of his recklessness. That's how people in this administration feel. Now, that's how a good chunk of them feel. But you, you made a point earlier, Michael, about the 80%. I mean, 80% of people are gone. And I always call this the 80-20 equation of the administration. About 80% of people who came into this Trump administration were well-qualified for their jobs, were ready to do good for the country, and didn't necessarily know Donald Trump very well. And about 20% were sycophants and lackeys uh, from the island of misfit toys that Donald Trump had created throughout his career. That's now flipped. It's about 20% of people that are qualified for their, for their senior administration jobs, and about 80% that are lackeys or campaign aides. But Miles, that's not true. The, the, let's do your, your numbers, 80-20. The 80% of sycophantic assholes that is still in there are not people that had any connection to Trump yeah. pre-running, yeah. while he was running, when he was president-elect, or were even considered at the time by the transition team for posts. These are people who came in post-fact because there was nobody else that's there, like the Mark Meadows of the world, like the Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz wasn't there from the beginning. Ted Cruz yep. didn't want Ted Cruz didn't even want to show up to the inauguration. Yep. I mean, it's it's not it's not accurate. What happened is people have realized that like Kaylee McEnany, the same thing. She came in, you know, post Donald Trump becoming president and all of a sudden by kissing his ass and blowing smoke up it all day long. He needed someone to fill the job of press secretary. And lo and behold, she's a good speaker. She's, you know, she's solid on her feet. Let's bring her in. I mean, he doesn't have anybody to go to. The entire transition was a complete screw up. But, you know, I too still speak to certain people that have um, that are still within the administration. And, you know, the Watergate moment, the way one described it to me in all of this is, really, what did the president know? And when did he know it? And that's going to be about the timeline of Trump's infection. Because, as he said to me, if it was indeed 72 hours prior to his announcement, and he knew as early as last Wednesday, I mean, that's a shocking and perhaps even a criminal act on the part of the president and the White House. I mean, what are people saying as to the veracity of the timeline? It's something that we, outsiders to the White House, we just don't know. So yeah. what are people saying? I, th I think that's the big question. That's the million-dollar question is, what did Donald Trump know and when did he know it? Because if he knew that he had COVID-19 before he went and undertook these events, then really it's the most that is the most damning indictment of his complicity and the sickness and potentially death of other people is actually carrying this live virus into those events. I think it's critical that we know it. We've now seen the White House put out contradictory information. His doctors have said one thing. Aides have said another. President has said another. Uh, this is a big, big red bullseye that should be investigated, looked into. And, uh, you know, I, I think that we're going to find out things that probably won't surprise us, but uh, that won't make Donald Trump look very good once the information comes out. But, you know, the people around him, you're absolutely right. This, these are not the all-stars. These are not the starters. The starters are gone. They've been thrown away. But these also, Michael, aren't the backbenchers either. These aren't the substitutes coming into play on the court 
It's as if the starters are gone, the backbenchers are gone, and Donald Trump is filling the team just with fans from up in the rafters in the nosebleed section. That's who's playing on the court right now in the Donald Trump administration. He's got the third-rate talent trying to help string this federal government along, and that's because of his character and the culture that he's created in the administration. So look, that's put the country also in danger. But would you call the bench warmers the Lindsey Grahams of the world, the the Jim Jordans of the world? There's there are real people here, Mitch McConnell. I mean, these are these are people. If you start adding up the number of years that they have, you know, provided service, you know, or I should say, just represented their constituents, and it's well over a hundred years in terms of you know the group of of these individuals. I mean, these aren't people that just showed up from nowheresville, but they've made a complete. 180, and now they're defending him or trying to defend him in a way that I did. And as I sat before the House Oversight Committee, I told them, I know the playbook. I know the plays that you're trying to run because I wrote them and it's not going to work out well for you. Look at what it's done to me. But, I, you know, Miles, I want to change, change gears for a second from COVID. And I really want to touch on how the president continues to make the country unsafe. I mean, the man contradicted his own FBI director as well as the DHS on the topic of white supremacy at the date. I mean, where he said emphatically that they were wrong. Now, you've spoken out on this before. How big of a threat is it in the near future? And what does the president continue to ignore? Or why should I say, does the president continue to ignore this extremely important subject? Yeah. It's, when, when we first came into the administration, I came in with John Kelly at the beginning at the Department of Homeland Security, and I was his, uh, basically his national security advisor, right? I was his, in, his intelligence and counterterrorism lead. So it was my job to understand very, very intimately what the biggest terrorist threats were to our country. And when we first came in, ISIS was clearly the biggest threat. We were tracking a lot of really scary plots around the world from ISIS that were targeting Americans. But around that same time, in that first year, 2017, I started to get briefed by my intelligence professionals at DHS and by the FBI about a very alarming uptick in domestic terrorism. And more specifically, they said, the uptick was being driven by a rapid growth in white supremacist groups around the country, violent white supremacist groups that were forming networks and plotting to do harm to other people. And it's something that we reported up, of course, to the secretary. We spent a lot of time focused on it and thinking about it. But as soon as we went to the White House and started to brief the White House and say, look, domestic terrorism, especially violent white supremacy, is becoming a very real threat. The White House basically put its fingers in its ears and closed its eyes. They had no interest whatsoever in hearing about this threat, let alone doing anything about it. And it was purely political because in their eyes, the people that were tied up in these networks, white supremacists, tended to be Trump supporters. They tended to be MAGA folks. Now, let me be clear, that's not to say that Trump supporters are racist. No, I think the vast majority of Trump supporters and Americans aren't racist. But that is to say that in white supremacist circles, the vast majority of them are Trump supporters. And the administration didn't want to alienate these people. And you've seen that with how Donald Trump responded to what happened in Charlottesville, the terrorist attack that killed Heather Heyer uh, in Charlottesville and, and the comments that he made about the bigots uh, that were there intimidating people on UVA's campus. You see it in his response or lack of response to the mass shooting that happened 
in an El Paso Walmart that killed 23 uh, people. The president showed basically indifference, even though the shooter in his manifesto invoked the president's own language about an invasion at the southern border to justify those killings. And you've seen it recently in the debates with what the president said about the Proud Boys, a bigoted group, an often violent group that targets people on the basis of race. And he told them, stand by uh, when it came to this election. The president doesn't ever want to condemn these groups because he never wants to condemn anyone that's a supporter, even if those supporters uh, are evil or violent. He'll refuse to condemn them because he doesn't see it as being in his self-interest. And that's what we encountered early in the administration is a White House that didn't want to talk about domestic terrorism. And as a result, right now, today, Americans are less safe against those threats because the government didn't do everything it should have uh, to go after those groups. But Miles, I see it a tiny bit different. I see Trump seeing a group like the Proud Boys not so much as whether they're a hate group or not, but rather they dress like an army, they look like an army, they carry the MAGA flag as their, as their own. I truly think he sees them as his army, that in the event that he ends up losing the election, that these people will come to, they will come to order for him, that they will be his army and protect his right to continue to lead this country. I think it's much more disturbing and sick then you think, and you have to really, again, I know Trump for almost a decade and a half. And in my book, Disloyal, which I think everybody should read, simply because it gives you an inside perspective of, to the, of the Trump derangement syndrome that goes on in his head, that you will get a much better understanding of who he is as a person based upon history. I mean, I'll give you as an example. I mean, Donald Trump used the DHS, FEMA, and disaster relief funds in order to punish wide swaths of the electorate who he doesn't, in his own belief system, doesn't believe support him. And you said once that he told you to stop giving money to people whose houses had burned down from wildfires because he was angry that California voters didn't vote for him. How explicitly were those instructions put into action? Because I've seen him over the years say insane things like this. He ordered it directly, but we resisted it. And I got to tell you, it was completely connected to his political standing and views. This wasn't the president errantly saying, well, I don't like the politics in California, but there's legitimate reasons to cut off the aid. No, he said to us that he had just listened to or read uh, a speech that Governor Gavin Newsom had given. It was kind of like, you know, there's the State of the Union address the president gives. The governor of California does like a state of the state address and says, here's what's going on. And the president was livid because he felt like in Gavin Newsom's speech uh, that the governor had said a lot of things that were against Trump administration policies. So he was pissed. He was hot when he called us and he said, uh, you know, he was mad to see that the governor wasn't being supportive of him. And, and in general, he hated the state of California, because the people there politically didn't support him. Basically, in the same breath, he said, therefore, you know, cut off the aid, the wildfire aid. Basically, they don't deserve it. Leave them on their own. I mean, our message back to the president. I, was, I, look, Miles, I don't I don't know how many times I've said this, that he is not a president for all Americans. He's a president for only those people that support him. And as a result of sort of this Donald Trump insanity in this Trump derangement syndrome that is sweeping this country. Both you and I have received over the over time some really truly despicable hate text 
Um, and you said in a response after showing the text on your Twitter feed, and I'm going to quote from it, the America Trump has created is one where honest dissent is met with vitriol and violence. I mean, Trump's rhetoric is like a loaded gun handed down to his supporters. Explain the context of this tweet and what happened to you. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure it's something that's happened uh, to you many times, Michael, and it's happened to other people who've spoken out against the president. Is In other times, I'd like to think that people would speak out against a political leader and the response would be to argue with them on the merits and argue with them on the ideas. Instead, in the current environment the president's created, people like us are on the receiving end of graphic death threats and threats to our families. And the president doesn't condemn that. The president condones that. The president fans the flames of the violent rhetoric that leads people to want to attack folks that dissent and have different ideas rather than to debate them. I think that's what's concerning. In my case, what I'd posted was a screenshot of actually one of the tamer messages I've gotten. I'm sure you've seen some really ugly ones too. This was one of the tamer ones. Yeah, I've seen stuff that reminds you of Silence of the Lambs. I mean, there it's really, the fact that people believe that they have the right to even say something like that, let alone put it down um, in, into a system. I mean, I've had Secret Service um, involved in this. I've had the local police department involved into it. I've, I mean, I've had all forms of law enforcement, and I have to thank them for their service and for everything that they have done in order to find and track down these people and to keep law in order in a country that Trump is, is destroying in terms of the law and order president. But I wanted to ask you, based on the above tweet that I was just mentioning and your knowledge of security in this country, what are the chances that if Donald Trump loses the election, that his supporters become violent? I mean, what do you see bubbling up on the wire that you see as frightening in the run-up to the election? Because I see some crazy stuff going on. I mean, really crazy stuff that makes me extremely nervous for for everybody in this country. Forget about those yeah. of us that are on Trump's bad side. I'm talking about for anyone and everyone in this country. I'm seeing some really frightening stuff. What are you seeing out there? Well, I hate to say it, but I think the odds are pretty high. If the president doesn't change his tune, which we all know he won't, then the odds are pretty high that in a contested election, he will activate his supporters to go out in the streets and he will fail to offer the leadership needed to pacify a very angry public. What's more worrisome though is even if it's not a closely contested election, even if Joe Biden wins by a landslide, the president has already started to seed the narrative to his supporters that if he loses, it's only because the election was rigged. And there's a wide swath of this country that will follow Donald Trump's lead. And if they think the election was rigged and he loses, he is setting the stage for sweeping violence. And, you know, Michael, you probably know this better than I do, but it seems to me like the thing the president is most scared of in his whole life outside of losing his wealth is just being seen as a loser. He always wants to be seen as a winner. So he's created this story that no matter what happens, he's not actually the one losing. If he actually loses, it's because the election was rigged. And he'll go on for the rest of his life saying, he, he, you know, he deserved a second term and he'll say he was the legitimate 
winner. It's always somebody else, Miles. It's always somebody else. And not only is it somebody else's fault that it wasn't, it was rigged, that, that there's just, it's never, it's never because of him. It's always because of somebody else. Now, you'll also remember that 19 months ago, I said to the American people that I truly believe that there will never be a peaceful transition of power in this country again as a result of Donald Trump. And now as you turn on the television, that's all that you keep hearing from the moderators on talk shows all the way to um, congressmen and senators. There will never be a peaceful transition of power. And I brought that up with the Proud Boys simply because he sees them as an army that is going to come out and fight for him. I mean, he really sees himself as a dictator or as a king. But I do need to ask you something about um, QAnon for a moment. I mean, they're a ridiculous fringe group, uh, but they're continuing to grow in power. First of all, for the listeners who are confused to what um, QAnon is, if you would, Miles, give them a brief description. And then how big are they actually? And in what way do you think that Trump is courting them as his voters? Well, QAnon started as basically a dark web conspiracy theory about the deep state and the federal government. So more specifically, there are these chat rooms online where people peddle conspiracy theories. And on one of them, an individual self-described as QAnon, who purported to be someone deep inside the federal government in the intelligence community, uh, explained that there was a plot in the federal government to undermine the president by deep state actors who've been in the bureaucracy for years and years. And you know, it was these very shadowy, you know, individuals who were trying to work against Donald Trump and QAnon's exhortation to supporters online was, you've got to work with us and help us. You know, we're going to root out this deep state that's trying to undercut the president. Now, tied into that was a whole bunch of crazy, just a big basket of crazy of ideas about, you know, Hillary Clinton being a child molester and, uh, you know, that the Democrats were, you know, running child sex trafficking rings, some, some really sick stuff, right? This would be things that you know, you would laugh off immediately and say, that's, that's absurd. But because over time, people that already believed the president's rhetoric about a deep state, which isn't real, by the way, I served two and a half years in the Trump administration, and never once did I witness a secret cabal of deep staters trying to directly undermine the president and thwart him. That's not real. I mean, what I witnessed was people who thought the president was doing illegal or immoral things and would report them either to the president or others Uh, and make sure that the right thing was done. But there were no secret plots to depose the president. However, Donald Trump has created this conspiracy theory that there is a deep state out to get him. So as QAnon came forward, this sort of snowballed among Donald Trump's supporters. How bad is it now? I think it's bad enough that it's become pervasive on social media. I even go on things like Instagram, and I'll see people uh, that I knew 10 years ago that I thought were reasonable and maybe worked with me in Washington, D.C., posting content from organizations that are affiliated with QAnon. And that is the president's fault because the president, again, has fanned the flames of these conspiracy theories. You've known him longer than me. He's a lifelong conspiracy theorist who's, I think, in the past questioned the moon landing. Uh, And I think he's, you know, he's embraced people like Alex Jones that questioned whether the Sandy Hook shootings actually even happened. 
only when he believes that it inures to his benefit because it's a popularist view that he thinks he could latch on to, for example, the birtherism um, conspiracy and so on. But you mentioned, you know, that you, you've been working there uh, for two years. So as we're wrapping up now, I want to ask you this final question. What's your personal biggest regret in your two years of working in the Trump administration? I know, I know mine. Is there a key moment in particular, one key moment where you look back now, that you look back right now and you wish that you had spoken up or you wish that you had said something? Yes, there is. I don't know whether it would have made a difference, but if I could have done something differently, it's that in the weeks leading up to the midterm elections in 2018, as the administration had become you know, more and more of a disaster, there were a number of folks in the administration who were considering resigning and resigning to make a point before the midterms that this president was incompetent and unfit to lead. And I'm talking quite a few people, you know, were having conversations about that um, in their own cabinets and departments and agencies. Uh, you know, people had all reached the same conclusion that the president was uh, unfit. Folks were scared to leave those jobs because they were scared who Donald Trump would put in their places, rightfully, uh, because in a lot of those positions. Ultimately, the president fired those people and put in place folks that were not qualified. But I wish that before the 2018 midterm elections, um, that I'd resigned from my position, sounded the alarm earlier and more loudly, and that I'd gotten other people to do the same. I don't know whether it would have changed the, tra the trajectory of this administration, but I think it would have helped to have shine a light on Donald Trump uh, and his corrupt behavior sooner. And I wish other people who'd been considering it at the time had done so as well. And I think maybe, you know, who, you know, who the hell's Miles Taylor? Uh, but maybe at that time, if I'd stepped forward, it would have given them a little bit more comfort to do the same. And I wish we'd done that sooner. Uh, but look, it's not too late, right? We still have an election coming up. I think there's still time for people to come out. And as I've been saying, Michael, if there are folks that are thinking of stepping forward, they should get in touch with me. We'll be able to protect them, but it's important, it's imperative that they tell the country who Donald Trump really is before we go make one of the most important decisions of our lifetimes. Yeah, well, Miles, like for me, you know, my biggest personal regret goes back to 2011 when I received a, I found actually, I should say in a newspaper, an article that said that Donald Trump had received 8% uh, of a vote on who people would want to be the next president of the United States. And I brought it to him and I got those juices flowing for him, you know, to continue. And then 2012, of course, we all know that he dropped out and he dropped out because we had pulled down $65 million that season in The Apprentice and he wasn't going to give up the money. Um, but then again, I pushed him in 2015 and it was at that moment I just should have not done it. And that will probably be my biggest regret is pushing him and lying to the American people on what a what a decent human being he was and that it was the you know um it was the left-wing media that was trying to discredit trump across the board everything that they had said was true but as i had said so many times before i wanted to have the world see him in a different way because i thought that becoming president of the united states would elevate his shit character but in all honesty, it did not do that. And in fact, what it did do is it made him into a lousier human being, except now he's a lousy human being 
with a lot of power. So Miles, uh, I'm going to join anybody who's listening out there. If you have something that you can share that will help in the upcoming 30 days for the election, please feel free. You reach out to Miles, you reach out to myself, and we will make sure that you're protected. But Miles, I do want to thank you. Thank you for everything that you've done for coming on the show today, for sharing so much information. And um, you just keep up the fight, my friend. And I thank you again. Thanks, Michael. I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we've got good news to report on November 4th. You and I will be speaking after that. Thank you so much, Miles. All the best. Listening to all of this madness, I'm struck by the fact that there are still people out there who blindly follow the word of Donald J. Trump. Let's face it, at this point, MAGA has become a death cult. The president may not be peddling cyanide-laced Kool-Aid, but he is nonetheless responsible for the deaths of scores of individuals, both directly and indirectly, from his policies and neglect. Now he's become a literal vector of disease transmission himself, Typhoidani. And with the announcement Tuesday that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staffs would be quarantined from COVID exposure, Donald J. Trump has become a walking biological weapon himself. It's insane that the president would return to the White House and jeopardize his staff's health when we are still learning of new cases among senior staff. This place is a cesspool. Kim Jong-il must be pumping his fist and laughing with glee as the president has single-handedly infected our entire executive branch of government and national security apparatus. I mean, think about that for a moment. He has infected our entire government with a deadly disease because he was too fucking vain to wear a mask. But still they believe in him. No matter the lie, they still believe. There's no way he could have COVID because he's taking hydroxychloroquine. You know what? He's a tough man. He's a good, he's a heart-loving man. He loves us. In fact, they cling even harder to him as a leader to reinforce that they themselves are safe. When you lose your own identity, you take on the traits and mindset of the cult leader. He must be at all times inviolable, perfect, always right. So thus he cannot have COVID-19, even if he has COVID-19. So then he must be immune to the disease itself. This is the language of madness, or what George Orwell called doublespeak. And we are still in the early days of this disease's progression. What happens in a week? All of this is like a terrible car crash. I don't want to see anymore, but I can't help but look, and what I see is actually horrifying me. I think this was a blessing from God that I caught it. This was a blessing in disguise. To marshal the power of his shock troops, whatever's left of the Trump administration launched Operation MAGA. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Team Trump Online. I'm Laura Trump, and tonight we'll be joined by Donald Trump Jr., Kimberly Guilfoyle, and our incredible vice president, Mike Pence, to unveil Operation MAGA. He's not even pretending anymore to be anything other than a dictator. Trump knows he must keep his mob engaged and entertained. He must show more than just proof of life, but continued strength and power. His base is all he has left as new polls released Tuesday showed him losing the state of Arizona for the first time in a generation, as well as a host of polls showing him losing badly in must-win bellwether districts in swing states like Pennsylvania and Michigan. This is still an election that will be decided at the margins. 20,000 voters in Erie, Pennsylvania, or Racine, Wisconsin, could decide this for everyone. 
So, there's a practical reason for Operation MAGA. But it's also a warning of what's to come on November 3rd, and a reminder from Trump of his command of the electorate. The result, though, was predictably sad and violent. Mass you, homeboy! I'll fucking eat your fucking face off, motherfucker! You want a fucking piece? Turn it off! I'll fuck you off! Get up, motherfucker! The president is now locked and alone inside the White House. The beast itself slouching towards Bethlehem. The White House is largely empty as a result of infection, but also from fear. Still, the MAGA death cult marches on. Donald Trump may be sidelined, but he still possesses the twin-headed hydra that is Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity. They're rapidly becoming the lone voices left within mainstream media to continue to support Donald J. Trump. Here's a snippet of their Monday shows. So this is political opportunism, obviously, but it's more than that. It's spiritual sickness. Hatred, festering hatred has driven these people bananas, truly. I don't expect them to suddenly stop and find their conscience. That would assume that either of them has a conscience. Instead, I will implore, no, beg them to stop. Now is the time to get out and get away from Donald Trump. Now is the time to free yourself from drowning with him in his own swamp of disease and corruption. You have a small sliver of time to get out and denounce the system that you've helped perpetuate. The window to salvage your career and your reputation is closing fast. And most importantly, how you will be remembered by history. Do not drown with this man. He doesn't care about you or anything other than himself. And thanks for listening. Susan, it's so great to finally be able to get together again. Oh, it sure is. And I really appreciate you picking up the bill. I'm happy to. I've got the extra cash. Since we've all been driving so much more again, I've been using GetUpside, the free gas app that pays you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get paid cash when you buy gas with the GetUpside app? Yes, up to 25 cents a gallon. Cash back every time I buy gas. Does that actually add up to anything? Some months I make 200 to 300 bucks. Wow. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the free GetUpside app now. Download the free GetUpside app now in the App Store or Google Play to save up to 25 cents a gallon when you buy gas. Use promo code FILL for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's up to 50 cents a gallon on your next fill-up. You can cash out anytime to PayPal or an e-gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free GetUpside app and use promo code FILL for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code FILL. 
Okay, guys, we gotta put our trays up for takeoff. Where's Dad? Oh, he's in the back. We could only get three seats together. Daddy has my pillow. Okay, well, we'll get it later. Can you not put your feet up, please? Why aren't we going? I'm not sure, honey. We must be in line for takeoff. Like security? Well, that was a different line. I have to go. We just sat down. But I have to go. The seatbelt sign's on. Why aren't we moving? Hey, no kicking. We're just 15th in line for takeoff. Son of a... Don't go there. Go on a real vacation. Go RVing.